Recorded live. Hello, this is the voice of Christian Israel, and this is William Fink standing in for Eli James, who took the weekend off. And today I have Clifton Emmerheiser here to talk about Revelation chapter 20 and the so-called Millennial Kingdom. Some of my program notes are available on my Chris Degenos website, and I'll put the link into the forum. It's not the regular Chris Degenio website, it's the Chris Degenos org website, and, and the link is on the left-hand side under discussion, program notes for, for today. Hello, Clifton. How are you doing? Well, pretty good. What do you think about this um, about this millennium that they, they teach and all, all the different varying philosophies that have built up around it and all, all the different sects that have, that, that have come to see this in different ways? Well, uh, way back in history, it, it, it has a, a lot of varied ideas, and uh, uh, it can be traced back, the idea can be traced back to um, Zoroasterism, uh, and uh, it's possible that the uh, Judaites may have picked up uh, that idea um while they were in Babylon, and then the uh, the Apophrica, there's several passages I haven't looked them all up uh, that refer to this type of thing. Although I I don't um, object the idea of, of a thousand years that it speaks of there. Um, I do I do object to it as a um, prophecy uh, of the future in our own time. I, I feel that it's, um, uh, you know, Revelation is, um, <clears throat> should, should be interpreted as historical happenings, and I believe that the thousand years that speaking of there is already past, and um we shouldn't confuse this thing with what they're teaching today, uh, like Schofield and, and all of his buddies. Right. And they've broken it into various uh, <coughs> categories. The, they've broken the different beliefs into various categories, haven't they, like amillennialism and premillennialism? Yeah, and, and we should um, uh, point out to the listeners that... Um, we can't avoid these terms in this discussion, but but generally when it's talking about uh, millennialism, you know, post-millennialism, uh, um, pre-millennialism, and, and uh, amillennialism, uh, if anything, uh, amillennialism, uh, amillennialism, it's, it's a little hard to, dip, uh, to pronounce, uh, may fit the picture of what we believe uh, uh, more than the others, but yet it doesn't quite fit either. And and so um, a proper view on uh, uh, chapter 20 uh, of Revelation um, uh, should be taken in a, a different perspective than what, what they're teaching. And, and, and probably the biggest... Uh, Stumbling block in the uh, uh, premillennial uh, teachings 
is dispensationalism. And uh, uh, they go by Usher's uh, chronology. And yes. Usher's chronology cannot be right. No, it can't be right by any means. Mm-hmm. And um, but, uh, when you called me and we talked about this, you, you, you said that um, um, from, ch- uh, from verse 1 to um, verse 6, I think it was there, of um, um, Revelation 20, uh, it uh it it's it's a spurious uh, uh a spurious trend. Well, no it's it's most of verse 5 is spurious is it verse 5 that most uh, of verse 5 is spurious uh-huh. and, and we'll we'll get to that i i'd like to say that you know usher's chronology is wrong because it it dates adam according to the masoretic text to approximately 4000 bc and because of that a lot of commentators have have made every attempt to neatly package a picture of the biblical history of the world in 6,000 years. So in 2000 AD, the world would end. And and on the seventh day, God rested, and, and we'd all be in heaven resting with him. And and basically, that was the, the picture they tried to portray in, in a simple nutshell. And in, in truth... There's no um, indication in the Bible that the the period of our history would last for exactly seven Earth days in the first place. Mm-hmm. The Septuagint chronology of the Bible puts of of the creation. If if we want to um, merit the method in which the years are counted in the Old Testament, and, and and I'm saying that what I'm saying is that I believe there are some gaps that are unexplained that that it's hard to judge the the exact number of years. However, it would date Adam to about 5400, 5407 BC, by some counts, the creation of Adam on Earth, and that throws a wrench into the entire dispensationalist um, view of of the world in 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 the Bible. And that's one reason I'm kind of against the uh, Book of Jubilees, because uh, I saw a work by a guy that that he put out. He he tried to uh, prove the the timeline according to Usher, and and according to Jubilees, it worked out for him, and and so uh, that makes me suspicious uh, of the Book Book of Jubilees. Well, right. Usher's timeline has a problem because with Usher's timeline, the first all there are ten or twelve patriarchs from Shem down to Noah, all alive at the same time, and the biblical record just does not support that. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, from Shem down to Abraham, are all alive and living at the same time. Yeah, in, right. Yeah, in the Masoretic text chronology. But in the Septuagint chronology, and the charts are on your on your website under patriarchal chronology, in the chronology section at, at emmaheiser.christogenia.org, the, the charts are there for everybody to see that in the Septuagint chronology, there's a much more normal progression of the generations and how many people from any gen- given generation were alive at one time. We know from the Bible that there's, you know, there's absolutely no testimony 
that Shem and Eber and, and many of the other patriarchs were alive at the time of Abraham. There's no testimony to that whatsoever. The, the, um, the Septuagint chronology would put the flood at about 3245 B.C. The Masoretic text in Usher's chronology puts it at about 2345 B.C. And, and we know that 2345 B.C., from everything that we've, we've studied and dug out of the ground and, and from the history that we know in the classics and, and the ancient world and the inscriptions, 2345 B.C., is an impossible date for the flood when we look at the at the existence of the Genesis 10 nations in antiquity. But 3245 B.C. and the Septuagint chronology is much more plausible and it agrees um, quite readily with, with what we know about ancient history. Um, I, I picked up a thing from Wikipedia that... Uh, uh, kind of proves that the early Christians understood that uh, Christ was born 5,500 years after uh, Christ, you know. and um, Which would agree with the Septuagint. Yeah, I'll, I'll read it here. It's just a short thing. Uh, a reaction to uh, eschatological sensationalism, uh, the millennium fervor of the premillennialists, as the year A.D. 500 was nearing, uh, caused caused them to have overly jovial uh, celebrations. Some uh, septua and and or septua millennial uh, interpreters calculated uh, Jesus' birth to have happened 5,500 years after the creation. Uh, and it goes on to tell uh, how, uh, as the year 500 approached, that they they were having these feasts and celebrations because they 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 felt that uh, uh, they were going into the um, seventh period or the seventh dispensation. You know, they was they was figuring uh, um, that that at, at 500 uh, A.D that uh, six dispensations had passed and they were going into the seventh one, which would have, the the millennium on that basis would have happened from 500 to um, uh, 1500. Well, I I would have to say that that kind of, I I mean, it's strange and and I don't, I wouldn't build a doctrine on it, but that kind of, falls right in with my my own interpretation of Revelation chapter 20. And and we'll see that later. But 500 to 1500 A.D. was basically a period of time when Christendom grew and thrived without the Jews having control. Well, evidently these Christians had the Septuagint to go by the chronology to, to understand if they were trying to celebrate it 500 A.D., they surely had the Septuagint as a reference. Well, absolutely. They used the Septuagint up until um, the Roman Catholic Church decided to to make Latin the the official language of of the church. And the Vulgate, Jerome's Latin translation, the the Common Bible. Well, the the Masoretic text really didn't come in until... uh, 
around the time of the King James Version, did it? Right. It didn't really come into play. It didn't really come into force in in Europe until the Protestants started making their translations of the Bible. Yeah, and that would probably include the Geneva Bible, right? And some of the first English translations were actually based on the Vulgate. But the King James and the Geneva Bible were based on a Masoretic text. Mm-hmm. And, and all subsequent translations of Scripture into German or English were based on the Masoretic text, on, on the Jewish text of the Bible. But anyway, uh, it, it kind of proves that they were cel- trying to celebrate the year 500 uh, as the beginning of a, another dispensation. It proves that that uh, the early Christians, uh, you know, from Christ on up to 500 A.D., uh, they had an understanding there that um, Adam, uh, uh, the, the creation of Adam would have been uh, uh, in line with the Septuagint. In line with the Septuagint, and that supports what Ephraim the Syrian said in the second century, that the Jews were were messing with the manuscripts and changing the dates, and and that's you know the result is the chronology that we have from Bishop Usher and the Masoretic text. Yeah, that uh, uh, that makes all this phony baloney that's going around now. And and uh, what I've noticed, there's a lot a lot of people in identity that um, even though they don't believe in a rapture anymore, they still believe in a seven-year tribu- period of tribulation and a millennium. Now, even Copper Ray believed in a, len- a millennium. Right, and I noticed that, and I addressed that at length when, um, in the notes that you published in the Revelation series. And and Wesley A. Swift, uh, he 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 mentioned uh, that you know um, uh, he kind of indicated that would put us in the millennium now. Well, I, I think that actually what these people were figuring, you know, from the millennium being from 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D. Um, would have, uh, but but uh, Swift said, he says, if this is a millennium, I don't want to have any part of it. Absolutely. And and what I'm going to say is that I before I start reading my translation and explaining my, my problems with the way that Revelations chapter 20 appears in most Bibles today, but let me say, I really believe that all of these these little um, scientific-sounding terms that the dispensationalists and, and modern commentators use to describe various biblical beliefs, like premillennialism and amillennialism, all, all they do is cloud the issues first, and, and they get people distracted. And, and it's the same thing with the Trinity. You have Unitarians and Trinitarians. It's the same thing. They make a science out of this, and it detracts from the pure, plain word of Scripture. And it and in the case of the millennialism and, and the millennium, it what it does is it it crowds out the historical view of Scripture, so that people don't simply look. At the historic, the fact that prophecy is history told beforehand, and once the historical view of Scripture is understood, 
we can identify the enemies of God and their actions in the world. The Jews, by causing all of this division with all of these false doctrines, are actually making a cover for themselves. Because we don't see that they are the Satan in the world doing all this damage to Christianity well, and, and then to Revelation, the true Israel of God. And Revelation, if properly understood, uh, will prove to sea line, right? Well, you know, it'll help. And, and the Revelation as a whole will definitely prove to sea line. No doubt about it. And, and here we're going to see some of that. This will help. And I'm going to start reading my translation of Revelation chapter 20. And, and I'm going to go as far as verse 5. Well, well, verse four first, and then we're gonna we're gonna discuss verse five at length. And I saw a messenger descending from out of heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he held fast the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil or the false accuser, and the adversary or Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit, and barred and set a seal upon it, that he may no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years should be completed. <clears throat> After these, it is necessary for him to be released for a short time. Now, it's evident from Revelation chapter 12 and from Genesis chapter 3 that the, the false accuser, the adversary, the dragon, the serpent of old has to be that same race that descended from the fallen angels and from Cain who were opposed to Christ, who are the Edomite, who were represented, they're represented in Judea in the first century by the Edomite and Canaanite Jews. They're not the only members of that race in the world at the time, but they are the primary representatives standing against against the will of God in the first century in Judea. And only Herod tried to kill the Christ child, and he being an Edomite represents that race. And And this here explains to us that those people are going to be bound in a pit for a thousand years. Not literally. Because the book of Revelation is written in symbols, and we have to understand the symbols in order to understand that the book is, it's not, it's a parable. It's not being, it's not, there's no dragon in a hole in the ground somewhere in chains. That's not what it's saying. That's not what it's telling us. Do you have anything to comment on that, Clifton? Um, not not a lot there. I think you covered it uh uh, pretty well. Um, yeah, uh, the book of Revelation uh, is is uh, in symbols. Some might call it allegory, but uh, I, I, I think symbols would be a better way of stating it. And if we don't know what those symbols are, we can't understand what's being said. Absolutely. And, and a lot of times, there, um, one of the big things in, the, uh, in studying the Bible and I learned this years and years ago. Uh, they talk about the rule of first mention. And whenever a subject's brought up, you go back to where that, that particular um, 
subject is first brought up. Well, if, if you, when it speaks about the serpent up, up in Revelation, you go back to Genesis where, where it first speaks of the serpent. Absolutely, and and that's that's the, the there's a direct connection here between that old serpent and the serpent of Genesis. There's no doubt, and it's the same race of people, according to Luke 11, where Christ tells them that their race is responsible for killing all the prophets, right from Abel. That that has been causing us, that has been adverse to Christianity and adverse to Adamic man since the dawn of time. And if it weren't so, Christ would have been bearing false witness when he pointed that they were responsible for all the blood all the way back to Abel. Uh, people people don't stop and think what they're when they make certain accusations. Uh, and, and Christ definitely pointed that they were responsible for all the blood, uh, including Abel. And and who other than Cain killed Abel? Exactly. I'm going to read verse four. And I saw thrones, and they who sat upon them. And judgment had been given to them. And the souls of those having been beheaded on account of the testimony of Yahshua. Now that beheading was, was a common thing that the Romans did to the Christians in, in, the, um, in the circuses. That they would bury them up to their necks and, and a mach- they would drive a machine over them and behead them when they weren't being eaten by lions. Those having been beheaded on account of the testimony of Yahshua and on account of the word of Yahweh and who did not worship the beast nor his image and did not receive the inscribed mark upon their foreheads and upon their hands and they lived and ruled with Christ for a thousand years. Now, I, I believe that this is telling us that the, the Jews attempted to destroy Christianity, which, which is the testimony of the early church fathers. If you read Irenaeus, he will tell you that the assembly of his time was suffering persecution from the, at the hands of the Jews. The Romans were only a tool which the Jews used to persecute Christians. If you read Tertullian, who was the bishop of Carthage in 180 AD, Tertullian testified that it was the Jews behind all the persecutions of the, of the Christians. Minutius Felix is a, is a contemporary to, to Tertullian, and he talks about the calumny and slanders of the Jews against the Christians, and how the Jews were responsible for the persecutions of early Christians, either directly them, themselves or by inciting the pagan Romans. So with the spread of Christianity, the European world began to distinguish itself from the Jews, and the Jews did everything they could to stop the spread of Christianity. However, once Christianity became the religion of Europe, the Jew was more or less ejected from mainstream society and had no power over Christians and was forced to live in ghettos, and Christian law became dominant. Eventually, in the early, in the early church, in the 4th and 5th centuries A.D., the Jews were forbidden from owning Christian slaves, 
from converting people to Judaism, and most importantly, Christians were forbidden from borrowing money at interest. And once the Christians were forbidden from borrowing money at interest, a major source of Jew income was cut off. Because the Jews have always been the usurers of the world. And the Jews were no longer permitted to loan money to the Christians at usury by the 5th century under Theodosius. That, to me, is the binding of the dragon. The Jews no longer dominated Adamic and Christian life. And 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 I'd like to um I'm going to get ahead of myself. I I wasn't planning on talking about this that early, but but for um for thousands of years, and and I have a, a post on my website at Christogenia to prove this. The serpent was the symbol of rulership wherever the Adamic race was in Egypt. In Assyria, from five from the time Christianity was declared the official empire of Rome, the serpent was no longer the symbol of rulership. The serpent was chained in the pit. Usury society no longer functioned. The feudal system came to power, and, and it had its imperfections. But usury was not one of them. People were no longer oppressed by Jewish usury, and the serpent no longer ruled over the sons of Adam. And we're going to see that that lasted for about a thousand years. Do you have any comment, Clifton? Yeah, I I, I agree with um, I agree with that, um, and. Um, but I was thinking when you was talking about the beheading there, uh, it wasn't only the Romans that was doing some beheading at the behest of the Jews. The French Revolution, they did the same thing. Right, absolutely, because the the serpent was back out of the pit. Yeah. <laughs> the that, serpent was that's how we can tell that he's back out of the pit. Absolutely. And it says that you go forth to deceive the nations. And 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 uh, what can be a better organization to deceive the nations than the, the United Nations or or the uh, League of Nations, which they tried to set up, you know, after World War One? Absolutely, and and there's a lot of other devices they've used to deceive the nations. But when the serpent came back out of the pit, it was fully evident. Like you say all the time, the head started coming off again, and that's exactly what happened in the French Revolution. But I don't think that's real. That's an effect of the serpent coming out of the pit, but I don't think it marks the beginning. I think the beginning is a couple of hundred years sooner, and we're going to see that. I'd like to discuss verse 5 at this point, since we've read the first four verses. I'm going to read verse 5 in my translation. This is the first restoration. That's it. That's all of verse 5 in my translation, and I'm going to going to explain that. That there is a um, a line in verse five that doesn't appear in the best manuscripts, but the NA twenty seven and all Bible translations include this sentence that I esteem to be spurious. 
in, in the King James Version, it's the beginning of verse 5, and from the Greek it reads, Those remaining of the dead did not live until the thousand years were completed. Now, the King James puts the word again in there also, and, and I don't know where they got it from. It's not in the Greek. And, and I would only say that it, it's implied that if you, if they believed that the dead would live again after they were dead, that then then they would have to put the word again into the text. However, Jude describes certain people that are alive as being twice dead. So, so, so you know, dead can be used metaphorically, and, and it can be used to refer to the spirit. While it can be determined from, from the NA-27, the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Greca edition of the Greek text that I employ, that the Codex Alexandrinus contains the line referring to this resurrection. The Codex Sinaiticus, which is older than the Alexandrinus, does not contain the line. Now, the Textus Receptus collection of manuscripts is actually divided on this. There's a, there's a group called A, and that group of majority text manuscripts are actually copies of a commentary written by Andreas of Caesarea, who, who lived as late as the 9th century, and he includes the line. However, most of the Koine Greek manuscripts of the of the text history of the majority text used by the churches do not contain it and the philozenian version of the syriac manuscripts does not contain it and there are certain very early church fathers who do not have that line concerning the resurrection as part of verse 5 of this chapter of the revelation the Codex Sinaiticus is the oldest existing testimony to this verse, and it does not have that line. Now, there's, there's one other testimony that's not a codex that testifies of this verse, and that's Victorinus of Petah, who died in 304 AD. He was an early church father. And he wrote and quoted from, from Revelations 20 and, and has a copy of it in his manuscripts. And he does not include this line about the resurrection in verse 5. Probably because it wasn't in the manuscripts he was using in 304 AD or until 304 AD. So verse 5 of Revelation 20 only says in the best manuscripts, this is the first restoration. And, and I translate it restoration because the verb translated resurrection basically means a restoration and not necessarily a raising from the dead. Well, restoration would fit better with uh, the book of Joel. Right. Because the latter rain is supposed to be a restoration, not talking in tongues. Right, and we have a first restoration, and at the return of Christ, we will have a second restoration. Or, or possibly with a later rain. That, that put a whole different uh, view on, on uh, this portion of uh, Scripture. 
Right. Omitting the first part of verse 5 that is not in the oldest manuscripts, entirely and, and translating that word resurrection as restoration, which it means, and, and I'm going to read the definition of it from Liddell and Scott. I'll read a um, an abridged definition of it. Anastasis means a raising up, a making men rise and leave their place, a removal, an overthrow, a destruction, a ruin, or a standing or rising up, a rising again. And, and it could mean that this word can be terp interpreted to mean the first overthrow. I could have translated it, this is the first overthrow of the power of Satan in the world. Because the serpent never, for the next thousand years, the serpent was not the ruler over our nation. Our, you know, the white Adamic nations. Christians ruled their own nations. Jewish usury and the Jewish money power was removed from dominance in Christian society. So this is the first restoration, could also be interpreted to mean this is the first overthrow of that serpent who was bound and put in the pit. Yeah, I have to think about that one for a while. Uh, uh, when you run into this, you know, you you, you got to uh, regroup your thoughts. And uh, I, I'm, I'm glad that you're pointing this out because I, I was not aware of this like I told you on the phone. Okay, I'm sorry. I tried to warn you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah. So, so it's... Uh, Yeah, okay. Well, it's restoration. It's it's not resurrection there. Right. It's restoration. But it could also mean an overthrow of the, the serpent rulers that have ruled over Adam kind. And, and that's testified in, in Luke, in the fourth chapter of Luke's Gospel, where, where Satan, where the devil says, oh, I rule over all these kingdoms and I could I, I could give them to whoever I wish. Mm -hmm. and, and that's not contested by Christ. It's absolutely true. And and that began all the way back in, in Genesis, I think it's 4-7, where Yahweh told Cain, Thou shalt rule over him, and, and under, under you shall be his desire. Because Adam accepted Cain as his son when he accepted Eve as his wife. And, and therefore Cain got the right to inheritance. And he was told by Yahweh that he would rule over Abel. And, and Seth's descendants are merely a replacement for Abel. Well, you know, there's other uh, reasons, though, that um, uh, show that um, uh, that uh, a, a, a millennium can't be in the future from our own time. Oh, yes, and, and we're going to get to them. Mm -hmm. We're definitely going to get to them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the thousand years cannot be in the future to our own time. It must be in the past. Mm -hmm. and, and I'd like to say that the, the laws, when Christianity became, Christianity became a, a lawful religion under Constantine. 
in, in three, around 330 AD. However, it was not the official religion of the Roman Empire for quite some time after that, until almost the fifth, until almost the sixth century. I think it was under Theodosius II that Christianity became the, the official religion of the Roman Empire. And from that point on, that would have to be the Eastern Branch, right? Well, no, that was well. Yes, the um, it it was um. I believe that it became the official religion of the Roman Empire before Rome fell in the West. It wasn't long before, but it was before Rome fell in the West. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Now the um, well, once that happened. And Christianity became it started to consolidate um, power throughout Europe, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily a good thing that we have that type of a church. It's not. It became a beast itself, and and that's a separate matter of prophecy. However, it excoriated the Jews, and it it passed laws against usury, and by by 500 A.D. there were all sorts of laws on the books basically being enforced in society against the Jews holding Christian slaves, against the Jews proselytizing their religion, against the Jews holding public positions of authority, and against the Jews loaning money to Christians at usury. So the Jews were not able to rule over Christians from that time. It's like the scripture says, ruling and reigning with Christ a thousand years. Exactly. And during the next thousand years, actually maybe even quicker than that in, in a lot of cases, but um, some Germanic tribes were not con- con- converted to Christianity until after a thousand or eleven hundred even A.D. The, um, during a thousand years, all of Adam kind learned the Bible, learned of Christ, learned of God, converted to Christianity. I mean, a lot of them have fallen away since, but I'm not considering those here. And and during that thousand years, Adam kind was basically became Christianized. Adamic society became Christianized and all received the message of the gospel. Yeah, even though... It was Augustine that went up and you know converted the English to the Roman Catholics, you know. Well, right. But they, they were, were already Christians. A lot still, of them were already they Christians. They still became Christians. Right, but the Swedes, the the um, Scandinavian tribes, and some of the Germanic, the German tribes didn't become Christians until almost the end of the first millennium, uh, until almost the end of of the the tenth century, I should say. Mm-hmm. Well, that was there again. That was a gradual process. It didn't develop overnight, you know. Uh, uh, right, and and just like the binding of Satan was a gradual process, it took almost five hundred years to bind Satan from the time of the crucifixion, or at least four hundred. The unbinding of Satan was also a gradual process, and probably began. With Cromwell, or, or in in England, or maybe even sooner than that, and and in Italy it began with the Borgias and the Medici's, the De Medici's, and mm-hmm. and I'd like to talk about them next. 
the, the Borges were a crime family. We spoke about them earlier. That They were a crime family that basically one of them got made pope at the end of the 1400s. And, and he died in 1503. And he was replaced by a de' Medici. And the de' Medici's were actually a banking family that became, three of them became popes in the 1500s. And during the 1500s, Catholicism was introduced to the Jesuits, where it were founded in 1534, I think it was, or and, and officially sanctioned in 1540. And more importantly, under the de' Medici popes, the Catholic Church, the Roman Church, started to accept usury and 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 drop its its long-standing laws against usury in Christianity, in Christian lands. And it started to permit Christians to borrow money on usury and Christians to loan money at usury. And that, I believe, is the beginning of the unbinding of Satan. That yeah, Satan but, crawled but, but, out of the pit when the Jews started becoming popes and, and usury started becoming legalized. And that's, that where, that's where their power is in the pocketbook. Their power, all of their power, all of the Jews' power emanates from the pocketbook. And all of his power emanates from the fact that he is crafty enough to, to convince nations that he will produce money and loan them money when he's really creating it from nothing and getting usury in return for it. He's getting interest in return for it. The Catholic Church actually changed the definition of usury in the 1500s. And the Protestants did the same thing. And, and the biggest um, advocates of usury in the Protestant churches was in Europe was Calvin. Okay, the other the other reformers stood against usury. Luther was against it. Whittingham, Coverdale, they were against it, but Calvin was pro usury. And in even in, in in the United States, well in early America, colonial America, Cotton Mather at the end of the seventeenth century buckled and gave in and, and was in favor of allowing usury and and he persuaded the churches of New England to cave into usury and to start allowing Christians to borrow and loan money of usury. And that happened, I believe, in the 1690s. Well, as a nation, we've never been under an honest money system, have we? No, we haven't. No, we haven't. The Jews were here as soon as the Dutch were here. A lot of people don't understand that, but they were on Wall Street as soon as the Dutch founded New Amsterdam. And I was just reading recently uh, from a Jewish source, but I think it's it's accurate, that uh, when that ship of uh, Jews came from Spain, uh, the ship's name was St. Charles, and they docked in uh, New Amsterdam, which is New York. Uh, the Dutch objected to, that, uh, to them being there at first, but it, it turns out that the uh, Jews had paid for um, the, the Dutch to make it from the old world to the new, so they owed them a favor. 
Yes, they did, because it, it, it's absolutely true that most of European expansion, and, and even the British Empire, was financed by the Jews. And so that's how they got into New York and, and got a foothold there on the basis that they were the financers of the Dutch coming there in the first place. And, and it's speculated, and, it, and there's a lot of evidence that indicates that even Columbus himself was a Jew. And, and he never really set foot in North America anyway, but he's, there's um, good evidence that shows that Columbus himself may have been of Jewish descent. Well, I do know that uh, from uh, Henry Ford's writings that there, there was four Jews uh, uh, on board his ships. So I, I don't know if, uh, whether Columbus himself was or not, but, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if he were. Well, well, the bottom line is that there was no usury in Christendom. The power of of the Jews over our economies and ruling our lives ended with the the advent of official Christianity, and and under the time of um, Constantinus II and Theodosius one and two, and it. The Jews were let out of the pit under the de Medicis and Cromwell, who borrowed money from the Jews to overthrow the king. Yeah, uh, Cromwell went down to Holland to get money, and they didn't give him enough to do what he wanted to to win some wars with it. And they knew that he'd be back, so the next time, next time he came down to uh, to get some more money, which they knew he'd do. Then they then they wanted a charter for their bank. And during that thousand years, the Jews had very very little influence over Christian rulers and Christian economy and Christian life. That was the millennial reign. It's over with. That was the first restoration. It's over with. And, and, and now the, Satan is out of the pit. And he ever since the the Enlightenment, Satan has come out of the pit. And he's deceiving the nations. We're in that short period of time when he's deceiving the nations. Well, we hope it's a short period of time. <laughs> I, I mean, a short period of time to us and a short period of time to Yahweh are two different things. Well, it's several lifetimes for us, but it's still a short period of time. Well, I, I <laughs> pray so. Um, Revel we are, I believe we are right at the time before the fall of Babylon, described in Revelation chapter 17, Verse 17, for Yahweh has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of Yahweh should be fulfilled. And if the beast doesn't have our kingdom right now, then he never will. The beast controls the kingdom. The beast being a... Um, a, a metaphor or a euphemism for the Jews and the other races and, and all of the adversaries of Yahweh, all among the mingled peoples, all all put together and, and rolled up into a ball and call it Satan. And, and Satan rules the world. And the money that we carry around in our pocketbook is, is absolutely satanic in nature. It, it's a satanic in, nation, in nature and, and it empowers Satan. Every time a Christian takes out a loan, it empowers Satan. 
Every and every time they print a dollar the bill, there's interest collected on that. Right. Even as soon as it's printed, it demands interest. And they aren't happy with just the interest. They want income tax on top of it. Right. The, the income tax is basically only servicing the, the interest. It makes sure that Satan reaps the, the, the bounty of the nation every year. It, it's through the, the debt money system, Satan collects all the profits from life every year. And anything we get to hold on to is basically a gift. <laughs> and it's basically luck. <laughs> if you can get enough to buy your gro- groceries, you're lucky. Right. And then you don't eat real well at that a lot of times. Well, if you have a, a contained village and only one person in the village is allowed to create money and loan it out at interest so that everybody else can trade, the natural result of that, the absolutely inevitable result of that, is that that person who's allowed to create money and loan it out in interest ends up with all the property of everybody in the village. And he does that by uh, expansion and contraction of the money supply. Well, right, but it's the natural result of simply being able to loan money at interest and everybody else has to pay you back more than what what they've received in the first place. And, and that continues and, until you own all the property in the village. It's the natural result. Well, they aren't even happy to to let you pay out all that interest. They want to foreclose on the on the property before you get it paid for. And they do that through expansion and contraction of the money supply. Yeah, that's that just accelerates the pro the 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 process of their eventually owning everything. It accelerates the process. That's all. So so the Jewish banking families that own the Federal Reserve and profit from the Federal Reserve, they have basically have been given a license to eventually own everything in the world. And they're the same families that crucified Christ. Absolutely. They're the descendants of the same people. Okay, let me read from um, from verse 6. Blessed and holy is he having a part in the first restoration. Over these, the second death does not have authority. Now, the second death I see as death of the spirit. Because Jude, you know, Jude talks about the the children of the devil and calls them twice dead. And to me, that means that once their body is dead, they're spiritually dead. But they shall be priests of Yahweh and of Christ and shall rule with him for the thousand years. And that's done. That was the first restoration. That was the thousand years or roughly that the serpent did not rule over the Christian nations. Yeah, I, I, I believe that fully. Verse and, 7. And scriptures, yeah, go ahead. And when the thousand years are completed... The adversary shall be released from his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle, of which the number of them is as of the sand of the sea. And they had gone up upon the breast of the earth and encircled the encampment of the saints 
and the beloved city. Now let's stop right there. I'm not even going to finish the verse. That This is the time that we are in right now. If we're not encompassed by our enemies right now, we'll never be encompassed by our enemies. Look at London and, and look at the cities of Europe and how they're just totally infested with Arabs and Asiatics. Look at the cities of America and see how we're totally infested with Arabs and Asiatics and controlled by the Edomite Jew. Yes, and that's been happening mainly in the last 50 to 60 years. These people are Gog and Magog. If you read Ezekiel chapter 38, you'll see that Gog and Magog invade the, the land of Israel, true Israel, and loot and pillage its property. Is that not what has been going on here since the 1920s? That's exactly what's been going on in all of Christendom since the 1920s, or, or possibly even a little before that. And, and the churches, uh, in a lot of cases, are the ones that um, promote that. Uh, they help finance people, uh, foreigners, to come in this country. Absolutely. And they They've been doing it. that since since the... 1910. You wrote you wrote a pamphlet about that play, the melting pot, that that Jew wrote in in 1910, and how that became so popular. It basically popularized the term and the belief that America was a melting pot, which yeah. is Jew propaganda. And that started here in 1910. They but were it, pushing it. it. It, the majority of it's been happening in the last 50 to 60 years, though. Well, right. It took them a long time to get their propaganda into the common vernacular of all the churches and all the the educational institutions and to make it a part of the – a total part of the complete program offered by all these institutions. That took a long time, but they did it. Yeah, and Schofield was right in bed with them, and, and it, was, it was part of the part Schofield, of the and, and I believe that um, the the other guy was, too, the, the Bullinger. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. And, and their books are still on shelves today because those books were conceived when those guys were in bed with the Jews. And oh. all of their ideas are officially approved, basically, by the Jews. And see, the Jews teach a millennium, and and uh, they're 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 basically wanting to go into their millennium where they're going to rule the world. Right, and I have seen, I have seen propaganda from the Jewish media that calls the next thousand years the Pax Judaica, which is absolutely disgusting. I think they even never been a, any peace where you find a Jew. I think they even claim the next ten thousand years is. Uh, uh, that. Well, that's their vaunting against God. Yeah. That's their boast against Yahweh. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. That's they, their boast against The Christians against are applying the scriptures to the wrong people. Uh, they're, they're trying to apply all this millennium, which uh, is crazy in the first place. 
they're trying to apply that to the uh, the uh, sandbox uh, nation over there, uh, the Israeli sandbox. Absolutely, and and that that um, <laughs> that place has nothing to do with the Israel of Scripture, and by no way does it meet the definition and the the description given in Scripture of true Israel. Yeah. But that's how Satan has deceived the nations. Well, dispensationalism uh, can be traced, uh, you can trace the roots of it to about 1830 uh, with with John Nelson Darby. That would be 1800 to, he lived from 1800 to 1882, and, and, uh, uh, and he was a Calvinist. Uh, theologian, founder of the Plymouth Brethren uh, in the U.S., the dispensational forum uh, of pre uh, premillennialism was uh, propagated uh, on the popular level, largely uh, through Schofield Reference Bible, and and on the uh, academic level of uh, Louis uh, Sperry Chafer. Uh, eight-volume uh, 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 systematic theology. <laughs> Don't waste your time buying that one. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, right. I wouldn't really buy any of it. Systematic deception is what it is. But more recently, dispensationalism has been popularized through Hal Lindsey. Uh, Hal Lindsey's 1970 uh, book bestseller, The Late Great uh, Planet Earth, and, and through uh, the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye and, and uh, Jerry Jenkins. And, and they're the big um, rapture proponents. Yeah. That whole left. I want to be left behind. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> I was going to write a paper on it, I want to left behind, and there's about six passage, passages in the prophet that says that. <laughs> right. You want to be left behind. That's the goal. That's the Christian goal, is to make bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, or, or to see it instituted here. But That's the prayer. All, That's the Our Father. That's the prayer. But you got all these guys like Jerry Falwell, you know, and 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 John Wolford, and and, and you know, there's there's a whole flock of them that that's teaching this satanic doctrine. Now the next line, and that I didn't that I left off at. In verse 9 of Revelation chapter 20, is and fire descended from out of heaven and devoured them, meaning Gog and Magog. Mm-hmm. Now, all of the, the prophecy concerning the return of Christ, Matthew chapter 25, when, when, the, when the Son of Man comes upon the clouds and, and, and returns, he will gather all the nations and set the sheep on the right and the goats on the left, and the sheep go into everlasting life, and the goats go into everlasting fire, destruction. Yeah, they're they're uh, uh, um, I, I was trying to think which scripture. Um, uh, one of the scriptures that proves that uh, that doesn't leave any room. I'll put it that way. For a millennium is Matthew twenty four thirty seven. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. 
for as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying, giving in marriage until the day uh, Noah entered the ark and uh, knew not until the flood came and took them away, so uh, shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Uh, that these people are going to be destroyed, at, at, uh, and I, 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 there's there's one place that uh, uh, it's Thessalonians um, uh, two and uh, seven through nine for the mystery of iniquity doth already work only he who uh, now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Uh, uh, and then shall that wicked be revealed whom Yahshua uh, shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Uh, that's the return of Christ. That's when, all that's when they're going to be destroyed. All will the enemy are destroyed. There's and, no and, return of Christ and then the enemy can come back after a thousand years. Yeah, they're saying that the uh, that the uh, that the enemy is going to be resurrected, and then he's going to be let loose, and they're going to reestablish the Federal Reserve, and we're going to have the French Revolution. <laughs> There's absolutely no basis in Scripture for that. When Christ returns, Gog and Magog are destroyed. Period. But Ezekiel, if you promote a future millennium. That's what you're saying. You're saying that they're going to be resurrected and we have to live through this whole mess all over again. Right. And and why would we want to live through this whole mess all over again? Even Yahweh, Yahweh could never be that cruel to, to, to his children. <laughs> Not only that, but the, the, the terrors uh, are going to meet their end as well as the people of the other races. Uh, uh, Matthew 13, 42, uh, Matthew uh, 40 through 42, and then uh, 49 through 50, as therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels and shall gather uh, out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into a furnace fire. Uh, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And then uh, on for the other races, so shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So uh, th th there you get rid of all the Jews and all the people, the other racial. Uh, right. Every plant that my heavenly father did not plant shall be rooted up. And that's so when it happens. It there's happens no in room return. left for, for a millennium. There's no room left for us to rule a thousand years and then get overtaken by Gog and Magog again, because Gog and Magog are gone. They're dead. They're buried. They're in the lake of fire. They're destroyed. Permanent destruction. A dozen other biblical prophecies, probably more than that. I didn't even get into Ezekiel 38 and 39 yet. And, and there is no more Gog and Magog. And that's what it says. Fire descended from out of heaven and devoured them. Here in in Revelations 20, and that lines up with all of the prophecy concerning the Son of Man and His return, which you just read. And I liken that fire to the fire that came down. Remember, 
it was either Elisha or Elijah, and uh, they come down, and the king was going to arrest them, and and, and uh, I think it was 50 men, and uh, it, it uh, burned all of them except one to go back and tell the king uh, what happened. He sent out another 50, did it the third time, and and, and the third time, the, the leader of the group decided to speak more carefully to the prophet. And, and a fire come down and consumed, consumed 50 men two different times. Yes, it did. And, and uh, I, I, just, I just believe that it's going to be something like that, only it's going to be on a, a lot bigger scale. A much larger scale, yes. Absolutely. You, ju you just wake up one day and there won't be any other uh, race around except white people. And and that's the way it should be. I want to be left behind. <laughs> don't rapture me. I should get a bumper sticker that says, don't rapture me. <laughs> okay. From, from, verse, um, from verse 8. I can't find verse 8. I'm, I'm lost. You get think, it, and 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 from his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are gathered in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather in the battle of which the number of them is as the sand of the sea. And they had gone up upon the breadth of the earth and encircled the encampment of the saints and the beloved of the city. And fire descended from out of heaven and devoured them. They're done. It's over with. They're not coming back. Now, this hasn't happened. No. So it must be in our future. But the thousand years is in the past because we are now in this time where we are surrounded by Gog and Magog. And they're not destroyed yet. Well, the dangerous thing. And all the nations are deceived. Yeah. All the nations are deceived because nobody knows who Israel is. Everybody thinks Israel is the Jews. The Jews are actually the enemy. That There's no doubt that every nation on this planet is not deceived right now. Well, so, the dangerous part of it is, uh, if you believe in this f uh, future millennium uh, idea, then, then uh, Satan's gonna, not going to be loosed for another thousand years. Well, uh, you take the uh, the Christians that take the attitude, we we won't worry about that. But we we got this problem right here today. Absolutely, we do have this problem right here today, and most Christians are too dumb and blind to see it. They don't even know there's a problem. It's incredible. There's only a small percentage of people that even realize there's a problem. And, and most of them don't know what it is. It's only two seed line Christian identity that correctly identifies the problem, the source of the problem, the reasons for the problem, and who the cause of the problem are. And this is the, the only, I, I mean, if all the nations are not deceived now, then I'll retract everything I said today. But if all the nations are deceived, then this interpretation of Revelation chapter 20 is the only valid interpretation. Well, I don't know of one nation that isn't deceived. That's my point. It has to be right. The thousand years is in our past. It was the thousand years that the Jews, the serpent, 
did not rule over Christendom. It was the thousand years that Christians did not, for the most part, borrow and loan money at usury, which is what empowers the serpent. And in a thousand years, they didn't pay any income tax. Absolutely not. <laughs> Revelations 20. I'll read from 10 because I didn't read that. And the false accuser who deceived them is cast into the lake of fire and sulfur, where also the beast and the false prophet are, and they shall be tormented day and night for the eternal ages. Now, to me, this means permanent destruction. I, I don't think they're actually going to be tortured. I think that this is well, poetic. Well, you know, too bad that they can't be tortured forever. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, some of them would deserve it. But uh, uh, you, don't want, you don't want anything left of them. No, absolutely not. And a lot of people try to say, and this is the restoration of all things crowd, that this lake of fire is the lake of Shekinah. And I've addressed this on the forum at Christagenia.org. The lake of fire is the lake of fire, and it's a destructive fire. There is no interpreting this word any other way. It is not the lake of Yahweh Shekinah that's going to cleanse these people. Because at the end of this chapter, we'll see that death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. And why, did death, why does death need to be cleansed? And why does hell need to be? That's just a ridiculous, well, ridiculous. See, Stephanie Jones has to get that daughter of color in, in the kingdom. Yeah, right. Well, why doesn't he just take her out and put a coat of paint on her and try to make her white? <laughs> Stephanie Jones has some serious problems with his, with his theology, and and he's a mud anyway. I think I, I I don't know, but yeah, he he does make excuses for his for his um, half breed black daughter. And, and I, that, whether or not that's the real excuse for his theology or not. I mean, his theology had to be screwed up in the first place for him to have such a daughter. Right. In, in the first place. And even if she's adopted, uh, that's against the rules. Absolutely. He brought a mamzer in, in, into the congregation. There's no doubt. There's no way around that. But he has a black daughter and he's proud of her. And then he goes out and poisons the children of Israel with his, his Jewish theology, which is what it is. It's a satanic theology. And anything that, that's, that's contrary to, to the word of Yahweh is satanic. And, and if you're bringing mamzers into the congregation, you're a Satan. That's it. That's the bottom line. Revelation 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and he sitting upon it, for whose presence the earth and the heaven had fled, and a place is not found for them. And I saw the dead, the great ones and the small ones, standing before the throne. And the books had been opened, and another book was opened, which is that of life. And the dead were judged from out of the things written in the books according to their works. And the sea had given over those dead who were in it, and death and Hades had given over those who were in them, and each are judged according to their works. And death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, which I believe is the spiritual death. And if one is not found written in the book of life, he is cast into the lake of fire. And, and we're told in the book of Enoch that the spirits, all the evil spirits come from the bastards. 
the evil spirits come from the people of mixed race. That's what the Book of Enoch says. It's, it's quoted and cited in my paper, The Problem with Genesis 6, 1 to 4, on Christogenia. I, I, I don't have the, um, you know, I don't have the, the exact quotes and citations in my head. I'm sorry. But it's in that paper. And, and that's it. That's the, that's the end of this age. And, and this is all symbolic, poetic metaphor, and it's all written in symbols. But it, when Christ comes back, when he returns, it's forever. It's for good. All of the enemies are destroyed forever, permanently. There's no coming back from that. How could they imagine there's something, there's somebody that could come back from that? Well, it'd be equivalent to taking Christ back off the throne after you, if you, you coronate him as, uh, you know, king over everything. That that would do, uh, to to leave Satan uh, gain control. That'd be taking him back off the throne. Right. That's a cartoon religion. That's not my religion. <laughs> That's leave that for Saturday morning kitty shows or something. So, so the people that believe in a future millennium are absolutely wrong. And and this people in, in Israel identity push it. And Comparate push it. And he was wrong. And we can't take our teachers and put them on a pedestal and assume that they can't be wrong. We can all be wrong. But when something accords so well with Scripture and with history, we know that it has to be true. And, and I believe that this presentation here is, is the only legitimate presentation of Revelation chapter 20. It's the only legitimate interpretation of it. Uh, I've, I've written about the uh, uh, so-called millennium, uh, you know, different times. And uh, uh, I was trying to see where I first wrote on it. Uh, I, I wrote on it uh, in 47. Uh, I, I think I wrote on it one time before that, but at that time I was on the subject of the um, um, uh, of Odinism, you know, and uh, I had been sent, uh, a woman sent me uh, several pages out of uh, the 1599 uh, Geneva Bible, and um, I saw that, uh, according to their notes, that uh, they didn't believe, uh, uh, they more or less, uh, I don't believe they had everything right, but they didn't believe that in a future millennium. And that was kind of the thing that uh, that uh, changed me over uh, uh on my real strong position uh, against the future future millennium, and um, so uh, that's one of the reasons why uh, I take the position that I do now. And um, well, at one time I I bought the whole whole line of you know Schofield. I believed everything. You know I didn't particularly. But I, I bought the whole thing on the rapture, and, and I believe in all that stuff. So, I mean, I'm just about as opposite now as what I used to be. Right, and there's no shame in admitting that because we all believe false things at one time. 
Nobody could say they had the truth from the day when they were born. And, and some of the things we believe now aren't true. And, and we have to be man enough to realize that and, and to realize when we have to go back and study more and, and to realize that when new information forces us to change our positions. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's a sign of, um, of, of nobility. That's not a sign of debasement. That, that's not a sign that, that somebody can admit being wrong at one time in their life. That's, you, you know, a lot of people in identity think that, that if somebody ever is shown to be wrong, that they're, they're totally exposed and, and that everything they ever said should go out the window. Yeah, in fact, there's a lot of, they think if they can catch you up in one little uh, error, then, then that gives them the right to throw everything out that you ever uh, taught. Well, right, because you're not inspired. You're not perfect. If you're if you're not inspired, you're not perfect, and, and vice versa. And and that's a false that's a false concept. That's a false conception. Yeah. We can all be wrong about something, and and we show that that we're true children of God and and, and true to the Word, and and humble, and obedient to God when we show that we could sit down. And, and study the scripture more and, and rethink our position on something and admit that at one time we were wrong. So there's no shame at all in admitting, I, I mean, being at one time an, a faithful Protestant or a faithful Catholic or, or whatever, and, and now you've come to the truth. And that's a noble confession. Well, I look on the Protestants anymore. You know, I was Protestant. And uh, I kind of look on a Protestant as a uh, warmed-over Catholic. Basically, yeah, they they um they fixed some things that were wrong with with church theology and in in their own little sects, but then they left a whole lot of error. And and look at them today. All the Protestant churches, their pews are filled with beasts and with every unclean creature. So they're definitely no better than the Catholics. And anybody anymore asks me uh, if I go to church, I just tell them I quit going to whorehouses. Right. <laughs> we are the church. We don't have to go yeah, to Yeah, right. Church. How could you go to the ecclesia if you are the ecclesia or a part of it? We are the church. How could we go to a church? Why should I go to a church? <laughs> it's like one guy in identity, you know, he's one of these churchified people. And and I had written him, and he wrote back to me, and, and, and sarcastically, where do you go to church? And, and I, I, I wrote back to him, and I said, well, I understand that the, the word ecclesia means called out one. Uh, I said, are you trying to tell me that I'm not called out? He never answered that. Right, they can't. They can't. The, you know, the historical model is the city of Athens, because that's where the word was used of the called assembly of the people who, who were called together when, when a decision had to be made. And those people were called the ecclesia, whether or not they were assembled. And in the book of Acts, it's clear that the Christian people, the, the children of Israel, who were called to the gospel and to God through the gospel, they are the ecclesia, whether or not they are assembled at any given time. They're still the ecclesia. 
And that's clear in the Acts, and it's clear in Paul's epistles. So our our thinking, it's the the Jews, the Jewish mind perverts language. We've seen that over and over again since the 1960s in this country. And, and it's happened all through history that our language and our ideas become perverted through the media, through the school systems, through, through their use, through their misuse. And eventually it's the misused definition that, that because of, of the repetition of times it's misused, it, it becomes the, the precedent meaning, the predominant meaning. And that's true with words like gay and, and, and things like that. In modern times, well, it's just as true of a lot of archaic words in, old, in olden times. Yeah, see, I could, I could, I could uh, demonstrate to people how they could uh, recognize the church. I'd, I'd get in the, uh, in the automobile and drive around town, and I'd sight a, a white person, and I'd say, no, there's, there's the church. Right. When you see a white person, that's a per- that's that's a church. If you're that's out, a member of the ecclesia. He's one of the called out ones. If you're out shopping or if you stop in a restaurant someplace and there's a white family gathered around uh, a table and they're eating there, well, they're the church. And those brick things with the crosses on them, they're really temples. They're not churches. They're temples. There's a big difference. <laughs> Uh, that's technically a temple. It's not a church, and and the Catholic ones are pagan temples, and and a lot of the Protestant ones are too now. <laughs> yeah. They're filled with idols and they're pagan temples. Okay, this is, I'm going to wrap up this installment of the Voice of Christian Israel in Clifton. It's been an enjoyment, and I thank you for being here. Yeah, I I hope that. Uh... Uh, the millennium uh, uh, is a little clearer now uh, in s- some people's minds. I know that I know that we aren't going to change everybody's mind. But. Oh, I expect to meet resistance, and eventually I'll have to write a paper and challenge somebody to disprove it. But well, ever since I wrote on this, I, I'd be getting black on it. Well, the problem with Christian identity is that people come to Christian identity from many other churches or or, or denominations or sects, I should call them. Really, they're sects. And they don't start with a clean slate. They want to bring everything they thought was good out of their old sect into this. And it doesn't work that way. You have to start with a clean slate. And and you have to get your beliefs from a new understanding of Scripture. That's what you have to do. And leave all the dispensationalism and all the garbage from Schofield and Bullinger and all the rest of those clowns behind. Okay, this is William Fink for Eli James and the Voice of Christian Israel, and I thank everybody for listening. Praise Yahweh, and have have a good week.